Welcome to the session. This is the Blueprint Soccer Podcast, and I'm your host, Clint. If you find this podcast valuable, please share it with your teammates, friends, and family. Enjoy. Live on this episode of the podcast, we are joined by New York native, former Chivas USA and New York City FC player, and current midfielder for the Houston Dynamo, Tommy McNamara. Tommy, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm glad your brother was finally kind enough to reconnect us. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to be here. Quick little backstory for the listeners. I actually played college soccer with Tommy's younger brother, Ryan, at the University of New Hampshire and then played a few games of a USL League Two season with Tommy with Jersey Express. So I followed up with Ryan to have him reconnect me with Tommy. So that's how we got here. I wanted to talk to you about uh, a few major topics that I think you can share some valuable insight on. Um, a few things that I hope we can get into on this episode is um, the highs and lows um, of the beginning of your career, uh, scoring your first professional goal on opening day, and then later, uh, about a month later, tearing your ACL, um, and what that experience was like and how you recovered from that. Um, and then I'm hoping to get into discussing what it was like playing along some really experienced world-class players at NYCFC in the likes of Lampard, Pirlo, Villa, um, and the impact that they have on younger players, um, in particular Americans, because um, my understanding is they're very beneficial, um, and I often think about what they would be like, uh, or what the league would be like if uh, you know those players didn't um, play in the league. So to get the conversation, one thing I, I wanted to, to get us started with was your background. Um, you come from a soccer background. Your dad was a major contributor at Ohio Wesleyan, one of the most uh, prestigious soccer programs in the country. And I have, was very fortunate to talk to Jay Martin on this podcast. And what a fascinating guy. Um, and through your grandfather, you hold an Irish passport, um, therefore being very appealing to European clubs. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about the decision to go to college rather than exploring the European path like so many young soccer players hope to do. You actually had have the, the resources in terms of your dad's background and the knowledge of the game and then holding a European passport. How did you decide on college and what was that process like for, for you in terms of youth soccer? Yeah, it was, um, for me, I, I, I grew up, uh, you know, in a soccer family, as you said, uh, both my parents played in college. Some of my uncles, uh, my younger brother and sis younger sister both played. Um, so that was always a sport that we were kind of going to play growing up. Um, but in terms of going to college, my mom was a teacher and still is a teacher. And, and my sister and future sister-in-law are both teachers. So education has kind of been really instilled to us at a young age how important it is, how important it was to go to college. Um, so it was just kind of always in my mind that college was the path. And especially at that time, when I got a little bit older, closer to 18, and realized that, you know, probably for me, it was most likely to play in MLS. 
at that time, the majority of people were going through college and being drafted out of out of college, whether they were Generation Adidas or whether they went through all four years. Uh, you know, it was my dream to go play in Europe at 18, uh, but there wasn't. I didn't really know how to make it happen. Um, mm. You know, there wasn't. I wasn't in the youth national teams, so there wasn't that avenue where maybe I was at tournaments and stuff like that, under seventeen World Cup, etc. Sure. So there was no nobody had ever seen me. There was no real opportunity. I'm sure I could have. I could have went and tried. I could have went to Ireland or something like that. But the the risk reward just didn't seem there with the college education to compare to you know going on trial somewhere right. lower and trying to figure it out from there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point for the listeners. So I, I was trying to get an understanding too. Did you ever try to explore those opportunities prior to college or was it you were pretty set on, on just going to college and then taking your career from there because you ended up at Brown University, right? And then Clemson. So, Correct. I mean, that most most students, uh, student athletes would dream of going to a Division One school like Brown or Clemson. You got the opportunity to do both. What was it, finishing your graduate degree at Clemson? I, I did not finish it, unfortunately. I'm, okay. I'm trying to figure that out now and see if there's a way to do it, but I hope to do it. But, yeah, I, I graduated undergraduate. But, yeah, before, like I said, before college, like, it was difficult. It was I was going to have to go on trial. I wasn't going to sign a deal. I was going to go to a a lesser team somewhere Mm -hmm. if it worked out and for not much money for probably only a year. And then, you know, if I got injured or blew my knee out or something like that, that that would have been it. The opportunities would have been over. I would have missed out on college scholarships, that type of thing. So it just, it wasn't there for me, but it's, it's interesting you bring it up because there was actually an opportunity after I believe it was my freshman season in the in the winter mm-hmm. where I went over to Ireland and an opportunity popped up and I, I did um, I did seriously consider it but it still was kind of the same situation where it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just bringing it up because it's from my perspective it's so it seems so interesting to see all these kids be so eager to want to go overseas and, and go into uh, professional. Uh, academies um, and bypass college when you talk about the risk reward um, I don't think they take it into consideration and and like I brought up uh, earlier you had all the the resources in terms of of the European passport having an Irish passport where it makes it so much easier yet you were still um, you know I guess more focused on on the college piece and, and uh, was it a conservative approach? I just want to try and give this perspective to the listeners because I don't think it gets put in a, in a realist, uh, realistic perspective for a lot of, of players. They just want to, you know, I need to be in, in a professional environment where they don't realize how difficult um, it is getting in and then staying in. And like you say, if you have an injury or, or something happens, you get let go after a year you're caught without not having a degree in education and you're scrambling to to figure things out um so what what other or who else did you discuss this you know uh decision with in terms of you know uh college or or not going to to um ireland um i know your parents like you said played a big role in in the education piece 
Um, but was there anybody else that, you know, may, may have played a role in saying, Hey, you should, you know, explore this. Uh, you need to go over to, to Europe if you want to continue on, on, you know, achieving your goals as a professional soccer player. Yeah, nobody, um, my uncle was involved. My uncle's been great. He's been around. Um, he coached me for a time when I was young. Mm-hmm. And then my coaches at FC Westchester, my youth club, they were Bolivian. Um, so they, they, you know, the South American culture, the soccer sure. culture is very important to them. And so there was obviously conversations of, you know, can we go somewhere and do something at 18 and go move into a professional setting? But we were all honest and realistic with ourselves you know mm-hmm. Manchester United wasn't coming and knocking on the door and and sure. you know I wasn't a prize you know commodity and I think the most important thing is you need to be you need to be honest with yourself and it's not to say that you need to give up on a dream or something like that but a perfect example is very recently is Gio Reyna mm-hmm. he was in New York City's youth academy when I was with the first team and so he would come up and train with us and this is a kid that was starting at the under 17 World Cup, had the European passport, and, you know, a number of top clubs were trying to sign him, such as Borussia Dortmund. And I'm sure they probably gave him, I, I don't know any of the details, but I'm sure they probably gave him a contract for longer than a year. You know what I mean? Right. And so for him, it makes total sense, like this incredible opportunity with Borussia Dortmund, one of the best teams in the world. For me, it was. Like I said, there was no real opportunities. We didn't explore it like outrageously, but maybe it would have been going to Ireland. But the Irish League was semi-professional at the time, so again, like we were just realistic. It it, it made much more sense for me since I wasn't going to a top club in Europe. Sure, for me to then go to college, get my degree, but at the same time, still have the goal of making it professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I don't want to, don't want, I I think you've said it perfectly. And and I just want to be as clear as possible for the listeners too to to make sure that they have a good understanding of of your background as well, because there are a lot of kids that just say, I'm going to go explore a, a third division, you know, opportunity somewhere in Europe, just so I can get into that environment, right, where they think that's a better uh, setup uh, in terms of their development, where you weighed those those options. And I think more people need to hear from from guys like you. And I've talked about on the podcast before, not every path, you know, is, is the same where I need to, you know, graduate from my uh, development academy team and then I need to go over to Europe or I need to get into a professional setup. There may need to be that next stepping stone where so many players You've been extremely successful in the MLS and have had a, a relatively long career compared to other players. Um, and, and you needed the stepping stone like most players to go through college to then get into to MLS where I just want to give more clarity to a lot of the listeners where so many kids think and, and parents think they need to push their kids and the kids need to go into these professional teams, whether that's third division Malta or third division Ireland, wherever, just to get into a professional team to continue on their path of achieving their goal where, you know, the reality is most, most American players end up in college. And that's a very good stepping stone stone for them. So I just wanted to share your perspective because you're one, like I said, that's had this successful career in MLS. You've gone to college. 
yet you had all the the resources in terms of yeah you weren't maybe the best player in youth national teams but you had an irish passport you had a dad and family members with with a soccer background yet they weren't saying hey we got to get you into ireland or europe you're a good player obviously you're a good player you go on to a very good division one school and and uh you know you've had the career that that you've had so far so i think it's just important for um families and players to hear um your backstory because you know not like you're you're a big name player where everybody's familiar with who tommy mcnamara is but to share your background and it's like oh wow this kid had uh, had has a european passport an irish passport he could have easily gone overseas but you know the opportunities weren't amazing so hey let's take a step into college and look where he is now right not every hindsight's obviously 2020 where you know you look back and it's like oh yeah everything worked out but you you made very good incremental decisions which i don't think a lot of players make yeah i to to expand on that point more there was two two other important pieces that i think need to be mentioned as well and like you said we made decisions that really worked for us and everybody needs to make decisions that work for them but sure. another piece of it was you know, I, I dreamt of being the best player in the world. I, I really wanted to be. Um, still can be, yep. potentially. But, as long uh, as you're playing, right? No, I, I was. Um, I was realistic that you know I was very. It was very, very, very unlikely for me to ever make enough money through professional soccer to retire and live comfortably. My family be taken care of. My future family be taken care of. It was very, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that. Even if I went over at 18 and I was able to make it to, to some sort of level, whatever it may be, I was still always going to have to, you know, work after playing soccer. And so that piece of it made a college education very important to me. And I think the other side of it, too, is, you know, I was pretty mature as an 18-year-old kid, but at 18 years old, you're still really young and you haven't experienced a lot of life. And to go, like you said, to try to make it work and to go to third division somewhere lower, low in Europe and, and be on a one year contract, you're 18 years old. You need to make mistakes in in your life and you're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if you go and you make mistakes, there, trying to figure out even just small things like diet, sleep and things like that. You're going to perform, your performance is going to suffer. And, you don't really have an ability to come back from those mistakes because then that team's like, ah, oh, he struggled, he's done, and now what, what are you going to do after 18 years old? Whereas in, co- in college, college gives you the ability for however long you're there to make those mistakes, and they, they almost want you to make those mistakes. That's the point of college, both on the field and off the field, in the classroom, socially. Obviously, it depends on you know the severity of the mistakes, but that's the whole point of it: to go experience, to to grow yourself, and to develop. And you know, you're given second chances depending on obviously the severity of those mistakes. Sure. No, I think that's that is really well put. And I'm actually working on something now um, that you bring up this this point of maturity, where a lot of American players aren't mature enough to live on their own in a foreign country. The, the culture shock, like you said, the diet is a big piece of it. Are they going to cook for themselves? What are they going to do? How are they going to take care of themselves? And a lot of those deals, when you go over to these uh, lower league uh, European clubs, it is a one-year deal. So you're making a lot of mistakes your first year. 
you're out. Where in college, you can go and make a lot of mistakes as a red shirt and still have as a redshirt uh, player on a roster, which means you can practice with the team and, and you know, not play games for the listeners that, that don't have an understanding of that term, and then still have four years of eligibility to then go and play and, and show your value and, and continue to mature and then give yourself the platform to potentially progress on to, to becoming a, a professional. And, and Tommy, for, for just so you know, you've listened to, to a few of them, but the, the major goal of this podcast is to be as informative as possible to the listeners to share players' experiences so the listeners have that insight to maybe have a better understanding of how players made decisions to get to where they are in, in their career. So, um, yeah, I think that that's a great point in terms of the, the maturity and, and what players need during that 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, those years in their life because you could yeah. be as mature as you want as 18 but uh, you ready to go in and jump in with grown men 26 27 year old olds that are trying to to put f- food on their table for their family so yeah, yeah that's a the, huge piece you know the difference the difference in the size of the clubs you know the 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 big clubs of the world Manchester United the Premier League clubs etc they have a lot of resources and a lot of money and a lot of people and staff to take care of these 16, 17, 18 year old kids that go leave home and they go and do this. Mm -hmm. But the clubs that are lower in Europe, they don't have the financial resources or the support staff to take care of these kids. You just, you go over there and you're left on your own and that's it. And you know, you you hope you come through it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like I said, they've invested a lot of money into the, the big clubs have invested a lot of money into that area and into the specific players that they need to make sure that they're supported, that they're nurtured, that they're looked after and that they help them grow up. Yeah. And like you mentioned with Gio Reyna, those are the types of kids that should be going over there, right? I don't want everybody to, to be under, under this uh, impression that, you know, Clinton, Tommy say, you know, you got to go to college. You, no, majority no, of, of mature, majority of players should be going but there are those outliers, the 1%, right? Like a Gio Reyna, uh, Christian Pulisic, uh, Weston McKinney. There you go. We named three real easily out of thousands and thousands and thousands of youth soccer players. You know, those are the one-offs, you know, at very rare occasions um, that go into these top clubs, Borussia Dortmund, uh, Schalke, right? You don't see many Americans going directly into Manchester United or, or Man City and being extremely successful with all the resources that, that they have. So um, I want to I transition a little bit into your college experience because you did more than four years. Um, and, and what made you go back um, to, to school to, to either, I know you, you mentioned the, the educational piece but uh, of your family background, but were there any other variables as to why you went back to school instead of, you know, I finished my undergrad, now I'm really going to explore. I got I got my degree, my bachelor's degree. Now I have this freedom to, to explore, you know, some other uh, opportunities as a player. Why go back to school? Yeah, so I, um, I did, to give a little background, I did three, I graduated in three and a half years from Brown and I went into it with the understanding that I was going to go and get my degree, graduate in December because the draft is in January. Sure. I'm be done. I have my degree. I don't have to worry about the senior spring semester. Um, 
unfortunately my junior year I was injured. So that was where I got my medical red shirt and I had an extra year of eligibility. My senior year, I played well. Um, and there was interest from a few teams from a few MLS teams, but MLS wouldn't allow me to enter into the, to, to enter into the combine or to enter into the super draft because they said I hadn't, um, used all four years of my eligibility. So mm-hmm. even though I was a senior, had been in school for four college seasons, but because I redshirted, even though it was a medical redshirt one year, they wouldn't allow me to be, to take part in those things. So now I was kind of in a situation where, okay, there was some interest from a few MLS teams, but really how it was going to happen was they hold their own individual combines for players before the, the normal regular combine before the super draft. Sure. So I got invited to a few of those and it was like, okay, I'm not a part of the draft. So essentially I can go take part in these combines and hopefully show in front of them well so that they'll then invite me into preseason and I'll be on trial. I didn't expect that somebody would sign me uh, not being a part of the draft, the super draft. And so for me, I was kind of like, again, it was kind of the risk reward situation. It was, I could go and I could go and take that chance. And if it doesn't work out, that was it. Like I wasn't going to get another opportunity. I, I, it wasn't, USL was around at the time, but they weren't making, you know, quite as much as what they were making now um, and things like that. So USL was never really an option in my head. So for me, it it just made much more sense to, to go to Clemson University. It was the coach that brought me into Brown and coached me my freshman year. He left. The program was getting a lot better. They're playing in the ACC. And so it was like, okay, I can go have one more year in the ACC, the biggest conference college soccer. If I go do really well, now I'll put myself in a position where, you know, I'll be in the first two rounds of the draft. People will want me. People will see me, whereas trying to chase them. So that was the decision that I made. Plus, on top of it was, again, the education side a little bit. I can go and I was planning on getting my graduate's degree, but I didn't quite finish it before I had left. Hmm. I think, again, those incremental steps that not enough players take in their career uh, in terms of, like you said, yeah, I could have gone into uh, a combine, which a lot of players would just jump all over. When uh, just to put this in, uh, for uh, just for listeners, so you have a better understanding. Tommy said, "Oh, there are teams that that are interested, right?" And they're probably wondering, "Oh, well, why didn't they just sign you?" That's not really how it works here in the U.S. There are so many combines and tryouts. There are very few occasions. Uh, you know, you you have to go through the draft. It's not like a team can just flat out sign you unless you're part of the academy and and you're tied as a homegrown to a club. Um, so there's this whole process where players need to go to these uh, combines, these tryouts, um, to continue to get evaluated, to then get drafted for another tryout in preseason and then sign. So it's a long, long process that's not just as easy as signing whatever players um, you know they want, unfortunately. That's just how the process works. So going back to my first point about the incremental steps, I think that's super important for the listeners to hear that you, you take these incremental steps each year where, yeah, it was a good opportunity, but what would have been a better opportunity to continue to progress as a player? And I always say to players, it's all about the longevity, right? Like 
you can go into Manchester United one year deal or sign a four year uh, scholarship uh, with you know Clemson University and, and continue to improve and mature as a player where you have those four years where you know you can make some mistakes along the way and continue to progress. But if things don't work out on your one year deal at Manchester United and you get let go, then you're back to ground one and you're looking for a new opportunity. Where, yeah, sure, if things work out, great, but that's that risk reward, the gamble. Are you really willing to take that gamble? Is it worth it? Or do you continue to, to progress in a place where you can learn and make mistakes and, and continue to, to become a better player? You know, you get very few opportunities in these more cutthroat environments, Manchester United pro clubs, right? So um, hearing from somebody like you that have that's taken all these little steps and now how many years in MLS? This is my seventh now. Seven years. That's, you know, most players are lucky if they get one or two years. You've gotten seven and, and going strong. So um, I think it's really valuable to hear from, from somebody like you that's taken all these little steps to get to, to where you are today. Um, but it wasn't easy when you first got into the league then. Like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, score your first uh, score on opening day, your first goal. And then, uh, what is it, a month later, you tear your ACL. That must have not been easy, especially being a first-year pro, but you've had all those other you know, hurdles and, and learning experience, and you're what then, probably 21, 22 then by the time you're in the league? No, I was, I was older. Remember, I did five years of college. Five years. So I, I was, uh, I believe it must have been 23 was my rookie year. So you probably were much more prepared than a 19-year-old that, you know, had that high of scoring in his first game and then tearing an ACL a month later. What was that experience like and, and having to work through that? You probably look back and it's like, you had that injury and it's like, thank God I have my, my undergrad degree. So if I don't recover you know, I'm able to, to get a pretty decent job somewhere with a, a Brown degree. Did that, do you, th do you think that helped in terms of your recovery where you didn't have this pressure like, oh shit, I gotta get back, I gotta get back on the field or else, you know, I'm screwed. I'm not gonna be able to make money at all. I'm gonna need to get like a, a real basic job since I don't have a degree. But since you do have a degree, you're able to, you know, take your time, do your recover, recovery proper, properly without any stress? Uh, no, not quite. I mean, it's certainly like, it's certainly the, the undergraduate degree is certainly kind of like a, a safety net if things failed in the first couple of years playing professionally. Um, and in that moment, so like you said, I started the first six games at Chivas and I was really kind of, I played in five different positions and I was doing pretty well in the sixth game. Like I really, I was playing back in the middle again and I really took a big step and was, was playing extremely well. The best I played in that game, it was up in Portland. And then unfortunately did my ACL, whatever, 60, 70th minute. And it was just kind of devastating because I finally felt like, okay, I finally like really kind of adjusted to the professional level in this moment. Um, and then to have that huge setback, I think uh, what was hard was, you know, obviously was so disappointed at first. And then I was like, OK, you know, the, the, the coach liked me. Uh, the club liked me. I liked being in L.A. Um, 
I liked being a part of Chivas, even though, you know, it's had its history. Mm -hmm. But then uh, about, so I was like, okay, I just, I need to recover. Um, I thought maybe I can make it back just at the end of the season, maybe make a couple appearances. But I had a little bit of a setback in the recovery process that kind of extended that. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to be getting ready for next year. Like nobody had spoken to me about what was happening. But then about mid to late summer, um, there was all these rumors that Chivas was going to fold because the league had purchased Chivas USA from the old ownership group, the ones that own Chivas Guadalajara. So the league was operating them, and there was a lot of rumors coming out that the team was going to fold. And so none of us as players knew what was going to happen. Like, are are we going to fold? What's going to happen? I was on an option year. As a rookie, I I signed a four-year contract, but every year was an option year. Mm -hmm. Um, so now it became a little bit concerning of, well, if this is going to happen, then what's going to happen? I only played six games. Like, yeah, I scored a goal and I played pretty well as right. a rookie, uh, but it was only six games. Sure. And then, uh, you know, we get told right as the season ended, the day after, we get told officially that, yes, the club's going to be disbanded. Um, there's going to be a draft. All the teams can draft you guys if they want to or if they don't want to and that'll be in like two weeks time or whatever it was a month's time so now it was like wow now i'm kind of at like square one like this could be it i don't know if another team is interested or not i know chivas liked me from my time there but with anybody else Mm -hmm. and um i was fortunate that that dc united did end up drafting me but i was also on a semi-guaranteed contract which meant that um at any point until the midway point in the season, they could right. they can cut you, and they only owe you. They don't owe you the rest of your contract. They only owe you maybe like two weeks extra severance or something like that. Right. So nothing was guaranteed. I was happy that they drafted me. Uh, it, it would have been a good place for me, um, but I knew nothing was really kind of guaranteed, and so it was still a lot of uncertainty. And then about two weeks after that, the expansion draft happened, and then New York City FC then took me from. DC United so in the space of my rookie year I was on in three different drafts and on three different teams so that is incredible it's it's a little bit of an MLS story for you yeah so there was a lot of uncertainty and it was it was a little bit difficult to deal with because my dream was potentially ending because of this injury Mm -hmm. um but I was lucky that opportunities popped up and I just tried to focus on my recovery because that's all I could really do at that point I couldn't control anything else and if it wasn't meant to be, then I was going to kind of figure it out after that. Sure. So just to touch on a couple of points, so there's some more clarity on it. The listeners are probably like Chivas, like you played against Portland Timbers, who I thought they played in Mexico. So <laughs> quick little backstory, if you're not familiar with uh, U.S. soccer history, 2014, like you said, Chivas USA was a club for a handful of years in, in Major League Soccer was a spin-off of the the major Chivas from Guadalajara, um, uh, but then folded um, due to whatever reasons. They didn't want to continue pursuing it. I think it was kind of silly in, in the beginning uh, to have that spin-off, but it is what it is. Um, must have been interesting for you being uh, your background, if the listeners haven't caught on, McNamara, white, Caucasian, being in Chivas, who probably was a was a interesting dynamic because that was heavily influenced by by Spanish players so maybe you can can touch on that how that helped you progress as as a player I think diversity is super important within a team uh, but to see you end up 
at, at a club like Chivas, where I know they were really focused on uh, Latino players. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on that. And then all that stuff about getting drafted and, and having a semi-guaranteed deal after the, the club folded, that's, that's common. You know, that's another point for, for the listeners to take into account when you know, a lot of players, um, first-year guys, guys that really don't have a body of work, get these semi-guaranteed deals, an opportunity to prove themselves and if things don't pan out that first half of the season, then you know rather than carry continue to carry them on the roster, clubs will let players go and, and cut the contracts off if they're semi guaranteed. So then they're not continuing just to have a player train and um, and you know pay their wages when they're not really you know benefiting the team and helping the team uh, achieve whatever goals they've set out. So touch on that point in terms of of Chivas and that experience and the perspective because I know that team was was heavily uh spanish-based players latino-based players what was that like for you yeah it was um so to give a little perspective i i I grew up playing youth soccer fc westchester and about half the team and the coaches were were central and south american Mm -hmm. so for me it was that's kind of where how i grew up as a player from like 11 years on till through 19 um, so that was pretty normal for me that that cultural influ- influence, especially on the soccer side of things. But the the year before I had gotten to Chivas before they drafted me, they um, I believe it was the owners had come out and said that they they only want Latin players, right? And particularly if they could only get Mexican players. But then. <clears throat> That, so that was the 2013 season. So then, I, you know, obviously I didn't quite fit that demographic. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of, that never really crossed my radar as a team that I was going to be interested in me. But then in the uh, in the off season from 2013 to 2014, like I said, the league then purchased the club back off of those owners. Mm-hmm. So now the league controlled things. And then it, they, they, they did a good job. They put some money into the team, and it was just kind of normal. There was obviously um, a lot of Latin players on the team, and across all the, league, all the teams now there's a lot of Latin players. But sure. at the time, there was a lot of Latin players. And so it was comfortable to me. I, I, I'm def- definitely not fluent in Spanish, but I can speak it enough, definitely enough on the soccer field and a little bit enough to kind of converse a bit off the field. And, you know, it was a, it was a really good group of guys. It was... I was um, I was fortunate. There was a few different like leaders in that locker room: Carlos Bocanegra, Dan Kennedy, who played a long time at that sure. club. Yeah, and so it was a good group. Um, and then we had Wilmer Cabrera as the coach, who was bilingual. He's Colombian, but he had coached the the youth national team in the U.S. at the residency program. So it was um, it was comfortable for me, to be mm-hmm. honest. Yeah, I don't want that to come off the wrong way for uh, to the listeners. But the the point I want to make is that it can be difficult if you're not used to. Um, you know, a different demographic. Like there are a lot of players that that grow up playing with players similar to them, whether that's just a Latino-based uh, community or a Caucasian-based community, where they're all playing with similar uh, demographics. There's no diversity within the team, and then it's hard to to adjust. Maybe that's a Latino player going into you know a Caucasian base club with primarily Caucasian players. I Like I said, I think diversity is something that's really important, something that I experienced and really benefited from as a player, especially at St. Benedict's, being able to understand cultures and, and people from all over the world. 
Um, but then I also know there's that piece where um, people of the same demographic like to hang out together, right? Like there's a, a community uh, of Latino players within a team. They're going to associate with each other um, more than they may with, with other people. Like they'll, they'll drift to that their their demographic right and if there's a huge um base of them it may be hard you know for uh, a player like yourself to to break into that group but it's encouraging to hear that there was a lot of inclusion and, and leaders to help facilitate um that so there weren't clicks and then exclusions and then hard for players to adjust to an environment because that's a that's a big piece your, your first year if you don't you know adjust and have this um you know, good feeling with within the team and, and ha build relationships with your, your teammates, it could be extremely hard to then perform on the field. So um, I just wanted to, to clarify that point, not that, oh, it's bad that Tommy goes into a, a Chivas USA, but like you said, it could be difficult, especially when ownership groups come out and say, yeah, we only want to sign or we're focusing on signing uh, Latino players. So um, real interesting to get that perspective from from your time at Chivas. Anything else uh, that first year that that's worth touching on before transitioning to to NYCFC? Because this is another uh, huge uh, step for you in terms of your career and and almost getting this like cult following at NYCFC. Yeah, no, I, I mean. There were some good moments for me at Chivas, but it was definitely, it was tough. After I injured myself that sixth game, I was I basically just rehabbed the whole rest of the year. So I was away from the team. Mm -hmm. I would maybe see them briefly when I got in and maybe, maybe if I was lucky, they, you know, I would see them when they were leaving because I'd still be there rehabbing. And not that I was, you know, frozen out or anything like that, but just because of, you know, the nature of what was going on. So it was a little bit disappointing a little bit frustrating as a first year player to kind of trying to you know establish yourself into the team both on the field and both off the field to then kind of just almost be pulled out of the team and just kind sure. of you only focus on yourself and just and that's it yeah. so it was um it's not something people ever really think about uh, but it's just it's just a, an additional point but no i certainly enjoyed it yeah it must it must have been strange too with all the talk and and rumors going around hey the club's gonna fold and then all the players are talking hey what's gonna happen you know are we gonna you know get picked up by another club what happens in the draft like what are you thinking what's your agent doing who who are they talking to at this point maybe you're like i gotta explore some opportunities overseas you know, there's probably probably so many things going through uh, a player's mind and the conversations that are going on behind the scenes that then make it extremely difficult to perform on the field because of all those distractions and concerns. So um, let's get into this NYC stuff a little bit because I think it's a, a big piece and, and I'm really interested to get your perspective on, on the club. Um, because these are the the real early years of uh, of the club, the the first years of the club, with uh, the likes of Pirlo and Lampard and, and Villa, um, and, and I just want to get a, a better understanding and and for you to share with the listeners of what it's like being around those guys and the impact that they had on your career um, and how they they helped other players within the club, or or maybe you're gonna come out and say. Uh, you know, they came to train, they didn't talk to anybody, and then they went home to their families, and that was it. 
Um, so I'm real interested to see uh, and hear um, your experience with them. Um, and then we can touch on some other points um, uh, with your time at NYCFC. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was very, very lucky to have played with, you know, those three players that, that essentially won everything that you can win, the top awards, the top trophies in soccer. And, you know, thinking, you know, as a kid dreaming of playing with Frank Lampard or Andrea or David Villa, uh, I always imagined myself playing in the Champions League in Europe, of course. So to have this happen in MLS and at New York City FC, which wasn't a club when I was growing up, was kind of just, you know, a, a big surprise, but uh, an experience I was very lucky to be a part of and fortunate to be a part of. In terms of them, they, they were great. Um, you know, they wanted to be, they wanted the team to be successful. Um, that was why they came over. They wanted to continue playing and they wanted to establish the club and they wanted the team to be successful. And so all three of them in their different ways, they were very committed. Um, they were very, they, they, they put in the effort. They put in, um, they had the right attitude around the place. So they want to get better. They want the team to get better and they want to be successful and win games. And, you know, that encompassed everything and we can go into it more detail of course but encompass everything from wanting to win every game to doing extra work themselves to if somebody makes a mistake in training just kind of telling them no you should like look at this or something like that to spending their time and i say hey what do you think about this or that or can you and they'd sit and spend their time to you know making themselves be a part of the team and, and, and one of the teammates and not just, oh, I'm here by myself doing my thing. So it was, they encompassed all of those aspects. Who, who gave you the biggest eye opener, right? Like, I don't want to make it about them. I want to, you know, get an idea of what they shared with you that then you uh, implemented into to your day to day or on the field um, because your career really took off then with NYCFC. It, it's, it's not easy for uh, an American attacking player to break into uh, an MLS lineup on a consistent basis. Yet you did that um, around those players where the club spent a lot of money on them, yet you were still able to break in and, and play consistently with the club around those guys. You know what I mean? Where a lot of American players, those, those number 10 positions, wide, wide attacking positions are, are usually filled by now the Diego Valeris, you know, Barco, uh, Blanco, right? Players from South America, European experience, and, and you see very few American players in those positions. How did you break into that, that lineup? Um, who maybe was a, a huge influence on you um, to, to maybe have you look at things in a different way to, to settle into that position and have the success that you did? Yeah, so... Um... For me, it was honestly it was uh, it was Patrick Vieira when he took over. So he took over the second season there, mm-hmm. and that's when I really established myself. The first season that was um, the first season was difficult as an expansion team, and we were trying to sell the culture. And Frank and Andre came in in the middle of the season, but they had just had a break from a full season in Europe. Andre played in the Champions League final, I believe, that season as well. Yeah. So it was kind of just. It was a lot going on and we were trying to figure ourselves and establish ourselves as a club and you know fortunately about halfway i kind of got myself onto the field and 
and helped with results. But it was really when Patrick came in and with his staff, they, they very quickly um, kind of realized what my qualities were and what my strengths and and they recognized my weaknesses and they were able to kind of take advantage of what I brought to the team but also hide my weaknesses and instead of just seeing the weakness and being like oh he can't do this he can't do that and they kind of built a role that that really worked for me playing as a left winger but being able to come inside Mm -hmm. and having Andrea playing underneath me and having a left left back that was very attacking to get around the outside and provide the width on that side. So it was it was them that kind of recognized the quality that I could bring and how I could help the team and then to put me into a spot where it would really help show my qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's another important name to bring up, I guess, right? Patrick Vieira with all the experience that, that he has. Um, what was his approach coming into the club after, I guess you could say, uh, uh, disastrous, a very difficult first year as a club with so much, you know, expectation being in a big city and, and really struggling. And then Patrick to to come in. What what influence did he have on players? Uh, obviously, he had a good influence, but in particular, what were some of the things that he did that helped you? That maybe you could share with the listeners that could give coaches listening an idea of maybe something to try with with their players and, and something for them to consider um going forward yeah he was um Patrick came in from day one and and he was a leader and and what I mean by that is he had a very clear idea of how he wanted the team to play soccer and he had a very effective and clear way of communicating that onto us mm. um and so right from the first day, it was explained to us very clearly, we want to play with the ball, we want to be very attacking, we want to be aggressive, we want to be on the front foot, and we want to press whenever we lose the ball and be a high-pressing team. Okay? Everybody says that, you know what I mean? Everybody, yeah. especially after, like, you know, Barcelona came through. But he was very clear in, in the way he organized drills, in the way he organized videos, um, to kind of just always be putting those points points of emphasis and he wanted to, us to be a team that played out of the back and the first six games of the season we really struggled we struggled kind of adjusting to that which is a little bit normal it's normal to uh, take a little bit of time to adjust to a new coach but sure we didn't win a game uh no actually we did win a game that's a lie but we <laughs> we weren't doing great results wise and we were making mistakes playing out of the back and i believe there was media coming out and you know how can they keep playing like this but he was very sure of himself and what he wanted to do and and that us as players could do it that he said listen all these mistakes happened we lost some games we didn't play so great some games. we're going to keep going and it's going to come right for us and because he was just so had so much belief in what he was doing and what he wanted to do with the team he never questioned himself or he never second guessed himself and that never transmitted onto the players and so the players continued to believe in what we were doing until finally kind of everything clicked and we kind of became that version of what he was what he was wanting from us so i think that was you know who he was was it was very important that he set the tone what he wanted from the first day and he never wavered from that message that must have really then influenced the the players in in a positive way to see that consistent approach where then you then have to trust yourself and, and his his word right where if he's 
you know, scrapping things every three games because it's not working and changing things, then you start to lose trust. But I'm sure there was probably some of that the first three, four games when you're struggling with results. But then for him to trust himself and to continue to reiterate his message, then probably starts to to foster that that confidence and, and continue to encourage the players. And then and then once things start to click, then things really take off. In the beginning, were you were you in the the starting lineup, or what was your your situation within the team? When Patrick was there, yeah, right at the second yeah. year, started. The se- so you are yeah, always. Yeah. In. I started in the central and midfield the first game. Frank was injured, and so it was a starting midfield three of Andrea Pirlo, myself, and Mix Disroot in the middle of the that's three. Right. And we won that first game. Yeah, that's um, right. and then. Then we struggled for a bit, and then I came out of the team, and I was on the bench, and then he decided to change. We were playing just a strict 4-3-3, so maybe it was like the eighth game of the season, maybe, I'm going to guess, something like that, sixth or eighth, and he decided to play me as the left winger, but inverted, and have the outside left back then go, and so he changed a little bit the formation, but the message was still the same. We, we wanted to play with positional play. We wanted to be high pressing. We wanted to, to dominate the ball and build up with the ball to create chances. Mm-hmm. And then from that point, we had won that game after we had lost when I moved out to that position and I played well, the team played well. And that was kind of the moment where we started finding success within ourselves. Was there, was there ever a period early on with Patrick where you just mentioned that you were out of the lineup? Was there ever a time where it was an extended period of time? There was later on in my career, but not, not towards the beginning. In the beginning, I, I would have to go look back to yeah. give you exact situations, but it was something to the effect of I started maybe the first few games, maybe came out for one, two, maybe three games at the most, and then I came back into the team, and then I, I mostly started the rest of that season minus a game here there yeah i didn't know if there was a a point that you could could touch on where maybe frank uh pirlo whoever else were in that midfield three and and you lost your spot for a little bit and and what your approach was in in terms of like ah shit well you got frank there you got pirlo there and somebody else like never going to break into to this lineup. Was there ever a point in time at, at uh, NYCFC where you're like, you know, a lot of players can easily say, shit, well, Frank is always going to play. Pirlo is always going to play. Maybe you, know, you, you mentioned Mix there. Maybe there was somebody else that was like, oh, these guys are all guaranteed to play. No matter what I do in training, I'm screwed being behind these guys. Was there ever, was there ever a point in time there at City like that? Uh, maybe... Maybe slightly, and you know, in the back of my head, like you said, I, I mean, I feel as though my best spot is a central midfielder, and mm-hmm. like you said, Andrea Pirlo was there, Frank Lampard was there, Mixed Discord was there, yeah. who we were paying a lot of money for as well. It was a good player, and so kind of, you know, going into it, like, okay, I could play on the wings, I, and so I kind of just accepted that I would probably play on the wings, mm-hmm. um, but I thought I was better in the middle, and then. Um, and so when I Patrick recognized that, which is why I started the season in the middle when Frank was hurt and was playing pretty decent in there. And then when I came out of the lineup, he realized that I guess my focus was just on not so much where I was playing on the field, what specific position, but that I was on the field affecting things. Sure. And so I was just concerned about myself and playing as well as I can and playing 
it's a competition. It's a competition with replaces. So playing so well that he couldn't not have me on the field. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it worked out that that was the case. And so he changed a little bit his formation to make sure that I was still on the field. So he did move me out of the center midfield, but he allowed me to kind of still play as an attacking midfielder. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's another great point for the the players listening because you could easily make that excuse. Oh, I'm behind Frank. I'm behind Andrea. You know, you know, Villa's maybe dropped in as a false nine. That all that central attacking space is, is clogged up. I'm never going to break into the team. You lose your motivation in training. Yet you say, you know what? Go out and and compete and and see where I can potentially fit in and then be open to those positions. Right? Like yeah, if you're flexible. if if you're doing that well in training, the coach is going to find a way to fit you into the team somehow. And like you said, Patrick tweaks the system to get you playing out wide as an inverted winger where you're still in central areas. And, and, it, and it pays off when you could have easily, you know, packed it up in terms of your, your uh, play and training and, and, you know, casually gone about your business, you know, come to training, hung out and, and made the excuse like, Hey, you know, Patrick's or uh, Frank's there, Andrea's there, and so and so is here. Mix is playing as a 10. You know, I'm never going to break in. I'm not going to compete as hard as I can. I'll come to training and, and hang out and be done with it. When I feel like so many players do that in their, their youth teams or, or in their college team and, and make that excuse, you know, whatever. Scholar, full scholarship guy just comes in from some MLS academy and, you know, comes into to the team and, you know, then it's like, oh, I'm never going to play. So I'll just casually go about my business when you do your job and you, you compete hard, like you mentioned, paid off for you. It pays off for a lot of those guys that continue to, to compete and, and then you find a spot within the team. So I think that's that's really important for for the listeners to hear. Yeah, most most of the time it will pay off for you. I mean, obviously there's always exceptions to everything, right? Sure. But if you if you're so desperate about wanting to achieve something and and you have such a passion and you're willing to fight for it, you're willing to fight and do whatever you have to do. And at the professional level, but even you're going to experience that at the college level, at the youth level, you have to fight. You have to fight to get onto the field, and it doesn't matter who you're fighting against. If you give up then maybe it means it's it's not quite for you. It's This wasn't meant for you, and that's right. okay. Maybe it's something else. But I was just so driven and so desperate to make it professionally that, you know, yeah, these big players were in front of me, and that's a really, really, really difficult place to be in. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just focused on myself, said I'm going to fight, and I'm not going to give up, and hope that something's going to work out for me. And, you know, fortunately it did at the end of the day. Did fully recovering from that ACL injury ever, did you ever look at it as like a second chance on life in terms of professional soccer where it, it was an extra sense of motivation to make the most of that, that opportunity? Yeah, it was um, <clears throat> recovering from that injury. I, I essentially lost my whole rookie year, right? Only playing the six games. And I was 23, so I'm a little bit older as a rookie. And so that was kind of, kind of lost a couple years in that by by starting professionally so old and and then losing my rookie year and so it's just always in my head to like I have to make the most of this there's only gonna be you know the best players play like 15 16 17 years the best that start at 17 years old so you know now I'm looking at 
you know, can I get to 10 years, whatever it is, 12 years or something like that? I need to make the most of it because I'm going to have a little bit less time than probably most other players have. Um, so that was always a factor. Like, I, I just need to enjoy it and make the most of it because it's going to be over. At some point, it's going to be over. Yeah, so for the players listening, everybody, like we talked about early on, after they finish up at their, their high school years and their academy team, that they got to find a professional team or academy at 17, 18 years old, or it's too late to become a pro. And you keep bringing up 23 years old was your first year in the league. So for the listeners out there, if you're 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, it's not too late. I even think at, at 27, I still have a chance, but that's a whole nother story. So um, most memorable like experience, eye-opening experience at NYCFC that you know was either uh, a, tactical insight or, or technical insight that you are like, shit, I wish I learned this at 16, 17 years old that, you know, you could share with the, the listeners that maybe they can pick up at an earlier age than, than you did at NYCFC from maybe like, maybe Pirlo shared something or Lampard or Vieira, somebody. Yeah, it was, um, there's, there was a lot I learned and we could go into a lot more details, All but right, for let's the, do it. The, the one thing, um, the biggest thing I learned is it, it's really such a small thing, which is really funny. Um, it was about body positioning. So I played as, like I said, an attacking midfielder. And so I played a lot in between the lines. And so you, I always heard growing up, always check your shoulders, always check your shoulders. Sure. And so that was a staple of mine, always check your shoulders. Right. But what I never really thought of was before I received the ball, if, say, uh, a center back was playing a ball straight ahead to me instead of I always would come directly back to the ball but I would be checking my shoulders and know if I could turn or not turn but what I really learned was to have an open body shape to come at the ball and not close yourself off to the whole field to play half open so that you can see much more of the field and it's significantly easier to turn so that was something that I kind of instinctively did it a bit on my own anyways but then it really kind of like i really kind of learned the concept and and immediately understood just how important it was and so since then it's really been something that i'm always whenever we're doing passing drills whenever i work extra in training afterwards i'm always working on receiving the ball with an open body shape that is that is brilliant and for the players that are that work with me that are listening to this podcast they're going to be like, Clint told him to say that. So little backstory. No, no, I, really I, I learned the same thing at the University of Akron through through Jared Embick, who I've had on this podcast that I consider one of the best uh, soccer minds here in the U.S. And like you, youth coaches always were like, yeah, check to the ball, you know, look over your shoulder to know if you can turn rather than adjusting your body. So you're already turned, your body is turned in the direction that you want to go right where you see so many youth coaches and players working on turning with the ball and checking the shoulder where you know if you work on opening up your body i can imagine the listeners right now trying to do it physically right now as they listen to it opening your body on like a 90 degree uh, 120 degree turn so you're not rotating 180 degrees i want to make sure i'm explaining this carefully and and concisely where 
if you want to go, let's say you said the center back's playing you the ball and your back is to the goal, open up to one of the sidelines. So either your front left foot is, is facing forward or your right foot is facing forward. So then you're able to go in that direction and you're able to see, you know, you look over the one shoulder to see if the, the space is there. And if there isn't, then you can go into the one direction right away. Did I explain that that pretty clearly? You know, where your body, like you mentioned, is on, on the half turn with one foot facing your goal and one foot facing the the attacking goal, where not one foot is facing one sideline and your right foot is facing the other sideline. I, I want to make sure I explain that clearly because it's hard to do, actually, when you're not physically on the field and, and working with the players. But I think that's brilliant, yeah, and a lot of players right. don't understand that concept where it's like, oh, I just got to work on turning with the ball and, and checking my shoulder where, shit, if I learned that earlier, I wish I did. That's one of my big things that I work on with the players that I work with to make sure that they're already playing on the half turn. So they're able to, they're, they're essentially only turning like 60 degrees rather than 180 degrees. I think that's the best way to explain it. Yeah. And you could see much more of the field rather than just having to look over your shoulder. You're already looking at where you want to you go know, 120 degrees of the field and now you only need to check you know 40 or whatever it is instead of the hole behind you right. and so it makes a significant difference it, it sets you up for what you're going to do next it, this decision's already made for you because you already can see what's happening before you even get the ball much more easily than if you're trying to look over your shoulders mm-hmm. yeah and for for the listeners too that aren't familiar with with Tommy's style of play it's another one of those things I actually talked to Scotty Caldwell on one of the previous episodes because I was real interested to hear from him you're another player with similar physical attributes you're not the fastest player you're not the most physical player but you're one of the more aware players in the league and and have a good understanding of the game similar to to Scotty where a lot of players I, I even uh, fessed up to it and admitted to it where, you know, I made the excuses sometimes where, you know, I'm not physically gifted enough. I'm not fast enough or strong enough. Um, so I'm never going to make it. But play to your strengths and, and have a better understanding of how you can play to your strengths and, and be more successful rather than trying to make up for your weaknesses in, in terms of getting faster or, or maybe significantly stronger. If you're really good at, at crossing the ball, continue to be really good at, at crossing on the ball and then fine tune those those small weaknesses. You know, if you're if you're good playing on the half turn, then continue to be really good at, at playing on the half turn. Don't try and say, ah, oh, I gotta go to speed school every week or, or speed and agility so I can can become faster. You know, you can only become so much faster and so much stronger. If you're really good at something, continue to to fine tune those things while you know, focusing on, on making incremental st- steps in, in those in those weaknesses of your career. Um, so going going to this point, uh, you're not the most physically gifted player, but you've made it work with the qualities that that you've been been given or, or you've developed in, in your youth career. How have you made that work, and how have you like like focused on those attributes that you know? I guess you've been been given or, or you developed that at an earlier age. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I always struggled on the physical side of things growing up and always with, you know, 
you you would have experienced is trying out with the youth teams or speaking with or excuse me the regional teams mm-hmm. or you know the youth national teams it was always even getting recruited to college at yeah. the the ACC schools and the big East schools it was always oh like you're just not athletic enough that's all I ever heard growing yeah. up yeah and I was like yeah me, I mean, you? I'm not the biggest fastest strongest but I have like I have quality I understand what's happening in the game I have vision I'm good on the ball there's much more to soccer than just that like, right of course it's important you can't just totally disregard it but um so because of that in order for me to be successful I could never as a kid rely on running past somebody with the ball or just using my body to just shield or push people over. Right. And so I always had to, and I was lucky I was, you know, kind of born this way, just just with um, the ability to problem solve. It's, it's just, it, fortunately, it's one of my strengths. Um, That's the best quality, I think, for any soccer player. <laughs> yeah. Problem solving. For sure. So I was kind of able to just really think the game. Um and so I always brought that aspect and then that was kind of just my strength and, and who I was. And so it was always to kind of use that attribute of my intelligence on the field of getting into the right positions when I have the ball to make the right decision with the ball, whether it was to dribble and take space, to turn back and to keep the ball because we've been defending for a long time to go because it's a transition opportunity or whatever the case, pass the ball to the right foot with the right weight, things like that. Um, and so it was really, really, I had to make sure that my strengths were good enough that it overshadowed and didn't take away from what my weaknesses are. And, you know, it's also important that coaches recognize that, of course, and they put you in positions to succeed where anybody's strengths are then shown through in your spot on the field. And also your weaknesses are a little bit hidden. Your weaknesses are never going to be hidden. You always need to try to improve on them. But that's also important too. what role you're being asked to do in the field. Yeah, no, that's that's really well said. And 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 that helps me clarify my point, too. I, I think I said, you know, you don't need to focus on your weaknesses so much. Just continue to focus on your strengths. But you worded it better in a sense like you can you can only physically get so much faster uh, and stronger but you can really fine-tune your touch and and have a better understanding of the game those are uh, abilities and and characteristics that you can really really improve with time with taking more touches on the ball continue to to work on simple repetitions and, and and you know have a watch videos to have a better understanding of the game and and see where your mistakes are happening. So I think that's that's really well said and, and how you put it is is very important for the the listeners to hear. You mentioned that there were a few other points and eye openers that that you picked up uh, at NYCFC, maybe at other points in your career. Uh, you mind touching on a couple more of those? Yeah, I'll give you um, four. They're more more interesting. I guess, pieces of story a little bit. Um, so the first was, I already kind of alluded to it a bit, but working with Patrick, he he followed kind of what Pep Guardiola wanted to do. He was kind of a big mentor and kind of um, how he modeled a lot of what he wanted to do as a coach, how he wanted to play. And so I never, I've I, I seen... Guardiola coaching and his Barcelona teams play, but I never heard the term positional play, which is kind of what his whole kind of system and philosophy is about positional play. 
And so with Patrick, I, I really learned a lot of that. And it was very, very interesting to me because it was a lot of it was it was just on your ability to understand soccer. Positional play, as I'm sure you're aware, but to just give a little bit. Of no, go, go. Is, yeah, this is good. Is, um, you know, generally we played out of a 4-3-3, but it can be any system. But you as a player are responsible for one area of the field. And yeah. that's it. And you can switch with other players, but if you switch, those areas of the field need to be covered and you need to be in those spots. And the point of it is that you always have angles and passes to play with and you always have teammates to find. And on the flip side, when you lose the ball, you're always in really good shape to then go and press the ball again because you're in the spots you're supposed to be. And so it was really interesting to me to kind of learn this way of playing because, you know, always it's been, yeah, we're going to play 4-4-2 or 4-5-1, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, kind of go and do what you want. Like, you know, you get told some information, sure. of course, but this was very specific of, you know, we want these players in these spots almost all the time because of this. And and so it was really understanding where you needed to be on the field at all times under all situations, whether we have the ball, where we have the ball, are we under pressure, not under pressure, and the flip side, when you don't have the ball. And so it was really, I really enjoyed learning that tactical side of the game. It was very, very enjoyable to me. No, that's great. That is very good insight. Yeah, a lot of players think they have to do it all. A lot of coaches want their players to do it all when in reality, players cannot always do it all, right? Where you you have to have certain responsibilities uh, in one position and then other responsibilities in, in another one. So I think that's really important for, for the listeners. So yeah, that's yeah. a really good one. And then... Uh... Another one, I'll give you the three DPs because, you know, everybody always asks me, what did you learn from them? Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, this will be good. <laughs> so from from David, David Villa, um, what I learned from him and what you could see from him was just his, his drive, his desire and drive to win. Um, every day when he came out to training, like there was just – this ultimate desire to win and to compete and to be better than you and to not lose anything. And for a guy that was, he was 34 when he got there and he was 36 when he left and he never lost that the entire time. He had won World Cup. He won the Champions League. He had won La Liga. You know, he, he was the leading scorer all time for the Spanish national team. And to come here in MLS and to just see every day that he had this drive to be better than everyone else and to win everything. That was, you know, you always hear about these things. Right. Of course, you always hear the best athletes, the best competitors. They always have this desire to get better and to want to win and the ultimate competitors. But I saw it with my own two eyes. He'd be the first one in. He'd always be doing extra work. Uh, he had his own physio when he was there for part of the time that would do extra work with him to make sure he was ready and prepared. And so that was... Um, that was that was really interesting to see a guy that came over to MLS after winning everything have that desire. Um, the second one was with Andrea. Man, this guy in training and in the game, he would hit passes that nobody would even see. It was. Um, I remember one time he. Uh, it was in a game against Ripples, and he was coming. To the sideline, the right back, our right back had the ball. He was coming to the sideline almost 
basically almost um, square with him, maybe like a yard or two ahead of him. And it was the right back had the ball. The right back played on the ball. And in one touch, he swiveled his hips and hit a one-time ball over the defense. And literally nobody on the field saw it. Nobody was ready for it. Nobody, our David Villa wasn't ready for it. Our striker, their center backs weren't ready for it. Everybody was just stood flat-footed. And there was a perfect through ball if anybody, if David had seen his intentions. And so it was just like, wow, like... And he did that multiple times where, like, he's seeing passes and nobody on the field else is recognizing him. But uh, so that was really cool to see. But what I really learned from him is just kind of his ability to manipulate his body to mm-hmm. then make the next pass. Right. And he was just very good at, 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 at kind of being deceptive about where his pass was going to go. So it was even his body would be facing one way. And so you'd think he'd be playing back where the ball came or something like that. But right at the last second, he would be able to turn, he would be able to swivel his hits and hit a one-time pass. And the defender that was coming to press him would never see it coming. Things like that. And, was, um, sorry. Frank. Go ahead. Was he the one that, who was the one that really talked to you or, or made you realize the importance of body positioning? Was it that... would have been the assistant coach oh, right. under Patrick was okay. was the one that had like really hammered it home to me. Mm-hmm. But then like you very easily like once I had like learned of it and was aware of it, you very easily recognized it in Andrea. Is yeah. that was that something that was talked? Uh, you know, how do I want to word this? Did you talk to like Andre or Frank or, or David about this? Because I'm sure they learned it at a much earlier age than you. Is that something like, wow, I can't believe I'm just picking this up now. Like, were there any conversations like that where it's like, oh, yeah, like, Tommy, we learned this when we're five years old in Italy. <laughs> uh, I did not. I did not have that conversation. I did with the assistant coach. Um, like, he, he didn't give a specific age. Right. But he was like, yeah, like, I'm, he's like, you kind of, when he had, like, told me about it more specifically, he's like, you kind of do it on your own already. But, like, you need to know of this and be aware of this. He's like... Um, I don't know. He's like, this is, you know, this is something that we work on in the youth academy. It's like, they, yeah. they start learning it from, you know, whatever age. He didn't say sure. the age, but, yeah. you know, I'm sure it was like 12. It was probably even younger, but 12, right. 13. Yeah. I uh, just interested um, to hear. Yeah. And then uh, the last thing was, was with Frank Lampard training with him pretty early on. We were just doing like, you know, normal training session, we ended with like 10 or 20 minutes of 11 v 11. And so we were in the midfield against each other. And uh, his team had the ball and they got the ball down towards the left corner and somebody was going to cross the ball. And I was marking Frank about 25 yards outside the box, like tracking his run towards the top of the box. And I had him, you know, within a yard or two of me, I was both side of him, I was good. And I went to look at the ball for one second to see is the cross coming, is it not coming, 25 yards out from goal. And I looked back, and it was literally in one second, it was two yards off of me, and he was behind me, and he was goal side of me. And I was just, like, scratching my head. Like, you know, you always hear about Frank. He's so good in the box of, one, arriving on time, but, two, whenever the defender looked towards the ball for that split second, Mm -hmm. he would then move off their shoulder and be free, and that's how he scored so many of his goals. Yeah. You know, I've heard about it, seen it on television, whatever, but that was like, I literally experienced it. He did it to me. He didn't score, the ball didn't come to him, (laughs) but he did beat me into the 18 for sure. Yeah, you can see it on TV as much as you want, but then to to really experience it 
in person is a whole different story. So oh, those are those are fantastic to to hear and get that that perspective. And and like I said in the the intro of the podcast, I think generally speaking, majority of the time, those players that come over, for example, Frank got a bad rap, right? For a long period of time, like, uh, he's just over here. He doesn't give a shit. You know, he's here on his holiday, finishing out his career and that's it. But like you mentioned, these guys have won everything, World Cups, Champions Leagues. You don't turn it off and pick and choose when you want to show up and compete. You're always a winner at that point. Like those players that come over here, the Thierry Henry, Kaká, Lampard, Pirlo, Beckham, all these guys are here to, from my understanding, from the guys I've talked to, like yourself, are here to help and want to win and, and want the, the best for the clubs that they're playing for. They're not here to just hang out. And, and I think that they're very beneficial to the league. I know there are a lot of American fans and, and a lot of you know youth players, youth coaches that I, that I talk to that are like, oh, these guys are just here on vacation. But the reality is I think they do a lot of good for the players within the team. Like you, you've just talked about here on this podcast, all you've learned from those guys have helped you become who you are as a player and, and, and have the longevity that you've had now in the league. So yeah, I know they may get a bad rap, but I think it's important for that for a lot of the listeners and people to have a better perspective and understanding of what they're really like. Because players are always going to have you know their down moments, bad form, good form. But overall picture, Frank Lampard did a lot of good for NYCFC, I think, and all those yeah. designated players. And and to make that one comment on Frank, he did kind of a little bit get a, a, a bad rap, but it was really he just suffered from a lot of injuries when he was here. It wasn't like he's older too, you know, right? Was, yeah. he, <laughs> Cut him he some was like thirty seven, thirty eight. Yeah. yeah, he was older. So it was just unfortunate, but to, he was devastated to not be playing. Devastated. He wasn't here to just he was devastated when he was out injured and he he rehabbed all the time. And then when he would get back and he was back fit and he was playing games and he was training, he would I would then see him after training sessions once a week, maybe sometimes twice a week during normal normal weeks during the season. He would then go do 10 to 20 sprints once or twice a week, like 80, 100-yard sprints Just on his own yeah. after training. No coach, no, like, no fitness guy like, hey, we need to build your fitness. You need to do this. You right. know what I mean? No, just on his own. This is what I need to do and work on. And I'm going to go do 10 sprints or whatever it is. And and you know what I mean? Like people don't hear about that and people don't see that unless you're around them. Mm-hmm. But I had read his book and, and heard about him and kind of even spoke to him himself. That was something he was doing since he was like, uh, I think it was like 14 years old. Because his dad would bring him out, and because he wasn't fast, and he would have he would wear not soccer cleats. I don't even think I think it was like literally like running spikes, mm-hmm. and he did that throughout his whole career. He would work on extra sprints, and like I said, he was even doing that at thirty eight years old in New York on his own of his own accord, still doing the same thing he did since he was fourteen or whatever sixteen. That's incredible. All right, before we wrap up here, I want to briefly touch on it. Uh, It's only been a short time that you've been at Houston, but what was that transition like? It's tough. I I just talked to a player that is now making a move from one MLS club to another 
kind of uh, against his his own will, not not by choice, um, which happens pretty often uh, in MLS. What was that transition like for you? How have you adjusted? How have you you know transitioned from you know a major city in New York City to now a smaller market club? like Houston, what are the changes like? Do you like it? And and maybe just touch on some of the, the quick, important pieces of, of what that transition was like and how you've adjusted. Yeah, it, it's certainly different here. Um, I've enjoyed here though. Um, but it was it was time for me to leave at the, at the end of whatever it was, the 2018 season. Um, from both of us, it was time for me to move on and for me to go experience something different. And so I was excited about that. and. Houston came around and Wilmer Cabrera, who was the one who had drafted me at Chivas, was the coach. And so it was kind of a good opportunity. I needed to play again because I hadn't played in that last year in New York much. And so it was a good it was a good place with a coach who was familiar with me to not have to have that like, you know, generally with a new coach, you have that period where they're trying to figure you out as a player and how do you fit into the team and what can you bring? And, you know, a lot of times a lot of times with myself, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, people kind of get hung up on, they see, you know, oh, but he's not fast and he's not strong. Like that makes, you know what I mean? You kind of, they kind of see that first, sure. what I can't bring. But Wilmer understood me as a player and as a person. And so it was easy to kind of make that adjustment when the coach kind of believed in me um, and knew what qualities I could bring. I was happy. I played a lot last year, which was important. Unfortunately, the team wasn't quite as successful as we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, off the field, it's certainly different, but it's good. For me, it's important to be able to experience different things in life and different cultures. And yeah, we're still in America, but the culture in Houston is a little bit different than the culture in New York. And the same thing with being able to go to two different colleges uh, it allows you to, to meet different people, um, to get different views on life, and to kind of challenge you and make you grow as a person. So I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great perspective to share. So the way I wrap up the podcast is I have the, the guests share their most memorable soccer experience, whether that was your time at Brown, Clemson, you know, Chivas, NYCFC, Houston now. What's one, you know, experience that you could share with the listeners that uh, is, is your most memorable? Man, I wish I had prepared for this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's tough. I've had so many, so many incredibly positive and also some, some very negative experiences like everybody else. Um, but for me, it's always, and I, I know it's very cliche, but it's always being drafted. Yeah. Because for me, it was a dream I've had since I was in kindergarten to become a professional soccer player. It was something that my my family and especially my parents they they sacrificed a lot for me to to value or to follow my dreams and to make this a reality and to finally, at, uh, you know, I was 22 when I was drafted, but it was only a month later I was 23. To finally at 22, 23 years old this finally became reality for me and for my family for how much they've supported me and how much they've given to me and sacrificed for me it was kind of just it was it was just a, a, a surreal blessing it was only the beginning but it was in that moment to share it with them it was just it was just so special yeah no there's a i think that's a, a great point to to wrap up on because you took all these little incremental steps that a lot of people 
uh, you know, may not want to take in terms of, you know, going to college. Okay, you're not quite, quite there. Let's go back for another year of college. Now you put yourself on a better platform in the ACC. You perform really well and continue to, to show yourself and then, and then get that opportunity. And it, it goes to show that those little incremental steps do pay off in the long term. And I think that's really important for, for the listeners to hear where it's not just you know, going for, for the home run and yeah, everybody's path is, is different, but for you to, to, you know, continue to, to trust yourself and take these little steps. I always say to, to players, especially the youth ones that, that I work with, that if you're good enough, you're going to get the opportunity. And I think it's important for people to hear your story because you just continue to work at it and, and you continue to, to see if you could, could play at that next level you know, continue to move up the, the U.S. soccer pyramid, and, and you did. You proved yourself, and, and now, like I said, seven years is something uh, a lot of players would, would dream of to, to have that opportunity because so, so many times professional careers are, are short-lived and are only one, two, maybe three years, and, and you're going on seven and, and going strong. So um, this, has been, this has been amazing. I think this has been one of the, the best podcasts that we've done. It's just, uh, I think there's so much to take away and, and, and so much valuable insight that you shared. So, so I really appreciate it, Tommy. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed it for sure. One last I like question. talking about these things. One last question, just so, so he doesn't get after me. Who's a better player, Tommy or Ryan? As soon as you said one last question, I saw this coming. Uh, Ryan, Ryan was a very, very good player. He had a lot of quality. He was different to me, though. He was more of a more of a deeper lying kind of passer of the ball. Yeah, and I was not that for a lot of years. I've kind of starting to slowly transition into that. But Ryan had a lot of quality. Uh, it was unfortunate, but Ryan had a lot of quality for sure. But but you you won the backyard battles. I was older, you yeah. know. I was, uh, I was older. Yeah, we had some good battles. I was lucky to grow up with Ryan, to be honest, because and my younger sister, but especially Ryan, having him. Um, we play soccer every day in the house, outside the house, before school, when we waited for the bus, when we got home. I was very, very lucky and fortunate to have grown up with him because if it wasn't without him, I would never have been on the ball half as much as I was as a child, yeah. which is everything at that age growing up. It's just to play and have fun. And yeah, that's a, that's a great point. There you go, Ryan. You got your love in, yeah. in this episode. So, Tommy, I appreciate it. All the best the rest of the year. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I'll talk to you.